80 wonderful people and 80 wonderful families. Thank you so much for serving the way that you serve. It was about 30 AD, and Jesus was going from Galilee in the north to Jerusalem in the south. This was the third time he had been there and as far as the annual pilgrimages go, and he's on his way. This time, though, whenever he gets there, a cross awaits him. So he's walking along the road to going to Jerusalem, and the Bible says there was a large crowd following him. And he turned to them, and he said something hard, disturbing. Oh, it wasn't harsh. In fact, he didn't even give them a commandment. There was no command to it. He just told them as it was. I've shared with you before that uh, I feel it's my job as, as pastor, as we're going through a passage every Sunday morning, I look for the imperatives in there, the imperative verbs. Those are the ones that are commands. So I feel like as pastor that if, if something is commanded in the Bible, I need to tell you that's a command. You need to do it. But there are no imperatives in this whole passage. No commands. The indicative verbs, those are just verbs just telling you the way it is. That's just how it is. Every verb in this passage is indicative. Jesus gave no commands to the crowd. In fact, he didn't even tell them, now whoever has ears to hear, let you hear. He didn't even say that. But what he said was disturbing Read with me verse 25. Now, great crowds accompanied him, and he turned, and he said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not sit down first and count the cost whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation, is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. It was interesting that Jesus turned to the crowd and simply told the crowd what it takes to be my disciple. He never commanded them, now you need to follow me. He never said, be my disciple. He never commanded that. It's your choice. You don't want to follow? Don't follow. But if you do, here's what it takes. 
In fact, he's saying, I'm not telling you to be my disciple. But if you choose to be, this is how you do it. Now, I'll be honest, this is foreign to us. I've been in church my whole life, and I'm accustomed to us all standing and singing an invitation, and everybody comes, you know, you sing and you try to get them down the front no matter what. I mean, you try to get them up here to, to receive Christ, and you sing 25 verses if you have to sing 25 verses, and you put on this emotional display and emotional appeal, and you come down here no matter what. And that was not Jesus. You don't want to come? Don't come. But if you do, here's what it looks like. Nor was Jesus into what Dietrich Bonhoeffer calls easy believism. And so many times in churches we have that. It's just easy to follow Christ. All you have to do is just pray a little prayer and Jesus comes into your heart. So come on up here don't you want to pray a little prayer oh we prayed a little prayer jesus is in our heart amen let's all clap oh i'm so glad and you can go back and live the way you want to live no jesus knew nothing of easy believism in fact he said it's hard you want to follow me it's hard and you got to give up a lot Nor was Jesus into the different stages of being a Christian. Okay, I'm a convert, and I'm a believer, but if I want to be a disciple, that's one step up. I read more, and I study more, and I serve, and I may be a teacher class, or maybe I'm a deacon, and I'm a little bit closer because I'm a disciple, but the others are just converts. Jesus knew nothing of that. You're either a disciple or nothing. There's no in-between. So, crowd, you're following me now, and I assume you want to follow me. Okay. Here's what it takes. What he said was hard. So let's examine it a little more closely. First of all, as Jesus turned, he made two bold statements. Two bold statements. Listen to them. Number one, first statement, verse 26. If any of you want to follow me, but you do not hate your father and mother and wife and husband and children and brothers and sisters in your own life, you cannot be my disciple. Hold on, time out. What? Did, did you say that you must hate them to follow me? That's what he said. Now, he didn't mean it hate the way we mean it otherwise he would have violated the fifth commandment he didn't break any commandments but in the semitic mind the whenever you use the word hate it meant you love less so what he was saying was if you want to follow me great but you must love less than me your children your grandchildren and your husband and your wife and your own life you must love them less than me because I must have your complete allegiance. You see, it wasn't about feelings. It was about position. Where does your family come? The end? Or at the front? 
He was basically telling them, look, folks, this is not a welfare program, okay? You're following me because I fed you, and I healed you, and I did things for you. And so there's a great crowd here, but if you're following where I go, there's a cross at the end of it, and you have to bear yours. And you know, sometimes with our friendship house, we do the same. We, some of them think it's a welfare program, and our job as a church is to feed them and to help them, and that's a part of it, but there's a greater message to it. A message that we must give up our lives to follow him. Francis Schaeffer was one of the most influential thinkers, theologians of the 20th century. You'll see a picture of him here on the screen. Francis Schaeffer had a keen ability to engage secular culture while holding to the truths of Scripture. He was a master at it. And whenever he was a teenager, he was raised in Germantown, Pennsylvania. He was a teenager. His dad, Franz, was not a believer. And Francis wanted to follow Christ. He was a senior in high school. And he told his dad he wanted to follow Christ. And his dad got furious. Francis, you're, you're a smart young man. You have so much potential. You're wasting your life by following Christ. And Francis came time to choose a college. And he wanted to follow Christ and be a minister. His father was furious. No, 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 you're wasting your life. And so it came time to decide. And his dad asked him, what are you going to do? He said, give me, give me a few minutes. I want to go down to the cellar to pray. He said, I went down there and I prayed. And I said, Jesus, I want to follow you. I don't want to go against my dad, but I want to follow you. And he said, I don't recommend this, but here's what I did. I reached in my pocket, and I got out a coin, and I flipped it up in the air. I said, if it's heads, I'll follow Christ. If it's tails, I don't. And he, he said, it was heads. Okay, Lord, two out of three. Flipped it again. <laughs> heads. Third time, Lord, flipped it. Heads. I'm following you, Lord. And he said, I went upstairs. And my dad said, what is it? He said, I'm following Christ. And he said, my dad got red in the face and furious and walked out and slapped the door. He said, the door frame just shook. And he opened it back up and he said, I'll pay for the half, half of your tuition for the first year. That's all. Slam the door again. Later, Franz became a believer. But Francis followed Christ, and he said, the first time I realized what Jesus was saying, if you want to come, come. But you have to leave everybody else behind. Bold statement. But here's the second bold statement. Second of all, verse 27, the second one was, whoever does not bear his own cross... And come after me cannot be my disciple. I can picture it. Turn it around. Whoever does not bear your own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. And I can imagine the crowd scratching their head going, what did he mean by cross? You see, he hadn't died yet. They don't know where he's going. The cross, I mean, they had seen crucifixions before, but it was for bad people. Jesus was a good man. Well, I, I've, I've seen the crucifixions before, but 
what on earth are you talking about? Bear my cross. Not a criminal. I, I can picture in my mind a lonely figure, shadow a person, dragging their cross to Calvary to be executed, but that's not him and that's not me. What did he mean? But in a few short weeks, they would understood, understand what he meant. And the reason he said that was because whenever you're on a cross, you're only facing one direction. You're not facing many directions. And whenever you follow Jesus, you're facing one direction. You're not facing many directions. You're facing one. And so he was saying the cross is not just some irritation or, or, or not some inconvenience. The cross is death. Your death. And if not, you cannot be my disciple. Three times he says it. You cannot be my disciple. And he uses the word in the Greek construction. It's called a, it's an, it's called a, a complete negative, absolute negative. So in other words, the cannot is emphasized. I can imagine him picturing him saying, you cannot be my disciple. But I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. And my cross I'll carry till I see Jesus. No turning back. Though none go with me, I still will follow. I have decided to follow Jesus. And then after two bold statements, he now makes two contrasting illustrations. What I love about Jesus, he didn't just tell you something, he illustrated it so you could picture it. And so he turned to the crowd and he gave them two contrasting illustrations. Here was the first one. He said, following me is like a man who wants to build a tower. But before he builds it, he needs to sit down and calculate, do you have enough money? Do you have enough materials? Do you have enough manpower? Can you see it through to completion? If you can't, don't start building the tower. That's an interesting illustration because it implies don't rush the decision. Don't rush. How many times have you ever heard a pastor stand up on Sunday morning and say, now don't rush coming to know Christ. No, we stand up and say, you need to come to Christ right now. And Jesus says, nope, no, 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 don't, don't rush it. You think about it. If, if you're not going to give it your all, don't come. Don't rush the decision. It goes against everything we've ever heard in church. Sit down and think about it. Sometimes we have appeals, or you hear appeals in church that makes it sound like you don't have to give up anything to follow Jesus. You just come, and that's false. You do have to give up something. You have to give up your life. Jesus said, don't want to, okay. It's your choice. 
sit down and count the cost first. Late 1800s in Scotland, there was a man by the name of John Stuart McCaig. He was a very wealthy banker uh, there and lived in Oban, Scotland. A little bitty town. It's his hometown. And he had these ideas of grandeur. He, he loved Greek and Roman architecture, so he was going to build in this little bitty small town there in Scotland, he was going to build a, a tower or a castle. He, 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 he uh, was going to pattern it after the Colosseum in Rome. So he wanted to make a Roman-like Colosseum in this little bitty town in Scotland. And so he had all these ideas. He became his own architect. He took his resources there at the bank, the money that he had, and in 1897 began to build. But something happened. It was harder than he thought. And it was more expensive than he thought. So he got the ground level finished and ran out of money and energy and stopped. The structure is still there today. Here's a picture of it. You go to Scotland, you'll see it. There, if you see the, the picture on the left, it's the, the town goes up a hillside. That's at the very top of the, of the town, and then there's a top view of it. They have weddings in there now and different concerts and events. But that's all he built. And all the townspeople laughed at this. They called it McCaig's Folly. Ah, look at Brother McCaig, he's going to build a Roman Colosseum. Yeah, that's hilarious. Right here in Oban. Yeah, that's, gonna, that's really good. And they all laughed, and he got the ground floor done. And the town ridiculed the old fool. And that's what Jesus said. And folks, all across the Christian landscape, there are towers that are half built, and you stop. And people mock. Oh, you're going to follow Jesus, huh? <laughs> okay, how's that going now? Well, I'm not in church. I go out drinking on the weekends, and I, 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 yeah, I don't know. I got the foundation up to here, and I quit. Yeah, some Christian, uh, well. And there's ridicule. Folks, if you're not going to build the structure, don't start it. You don't want to follow Christ, your choice. Nobody's begging you. Nobody's commanding you. But if you want to come, you don't stop halfway. You see it through to completion. That's illustration number one. Second illustration, verse 31. Jesus turned to the crowd. Or, or what? Let's talk about a king. A king goes to make war. And he's going to make war against another king, and he's got 10,000 troops behind him. And he finds out as he's going to make war that the enemy has 20,000 troops. Well, this is not good. He's outnumbered. So what does he do? He, he better, if he's smart, send a delegation of peace to come up with a peace treaty because he's not going to win. He's outnumbered. So before he even fires the first shot, he better think about, what do I have at my disposal? Can I win? 
Now, whenever Jesus made this statement to the crowd, I know what came to their mind. I know what, I know what came to their mind. This had just happened. King Herod, there in, in, in Israel, Palestine, he, he had attacked a Roman vassal state and lost because when he got there, he realized he was outnumbered. And he didn't lose the kingdom. The empire went on, but he was ridiculed. Oh, oh, you thought you could just go down there and win. Oh, well, they whipped you back to the, to the, uh, to the city limits, didn't they? They did. Whipped them all the way back to Rome. And so that's what was in their mind. In fact, the same thing happened to Saddam Hussein. He overestimated the enemy or underestimated the enemy, overestimated himself. There was no war general Van Moltke, mid-1800s, he was the field general for the Prussian army. Here's his picture. Van Moltke, he was high-tech for his day. He was considered cutting-edge. He he pioneered the use of railroads in warfare. And he used to say, first way, then venture. First way, and then venture. First way, can you do this, and then venture. But don't venture without weighing. Same thing Jesus said. Weigh it out. Following Christ. Do I? Can I? It's a question. Now, Pastor, wait a minute. You said two contrasting illustrations. How are these two illustrations different? Well, it's very simple. The first illustration about the tower, that was to the common person. That's to everybody. The second illustration about the king, that was for, that's for royalty. First illustration about the tower, that was responsibility. Second illustration, that's accountability. And so the first illustration is, Jesus has said, ask yourself the question, can I afford to follow Christ? Second question, can I afford not to follow Christ? Two questions. Because, folks, if you decide not to follow Christ, your enemy's coming at you with more weapons than you have. You're in trouble. So the questions, can I afford to follow Christ? And can I not afford to follow Christ? And you come up with the answer. So now we reach one costly decision. Two bold statements. Two contrasting illustrations, one costly decision. Listen to what he said. So therefore, any one of you, he didn't say the elect, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. The word renounce there is the word that means to forsake. It means to tell somebody goodbye. And it's the word that means to send away. By the way, it's the exact same word that's used when God said your sins are sent away. So unless you're willing to send everything away, everybody away, you can't follow Jesus. 
So, basically, he said you have to give up your life to follow somebody else. And that message does not resonate in our community, does it? Or in our culture. Giving up your life to follow somebody else. We, we live in a culture of me, my rights, my body, my life. And you have to give it up to follow someone else. So, what's your decision? Take your time. What is it? You may ask, Pastor, um, what does it cost to follow Jesus? Well, it'll cost you your eyes because you can no longer look at what you want to look at. You can't watch pornography all week. And it'll cost you your mouth because you can't say what you want anymore if you follow Jesus. Well, I just speak my mind. Not if you're a believer, you can't. It's not your mouth anymore. It'll cost you your hands because you can't do what you want to do anymore. And it'll cost you your ears because you can't listen to just anything you want to listen to anymore. It'll cost you your energy because you just can't commit to do what you want to do anymore. And it'll cost you your heart because you can't just do what you desire anymore. And it'll cost you your mind because you can't think what you want to think anymore. And it'll cost you your feet because you just can't go where you want to go anymore to the clubs or wherever. You just can't go where you want to go anymore. Not your feet. It may cost you your friends because they don't like your new choice. It may cost you your job because your job makes you compromise this book. Or it may cost you some money because you've chosen a living where you don't make as much. Yeah, following Jesus costs you a lot. Pastor, what are the benefits of following Jesus? Well, let me look. Huh. I don't see any. He didn't mention one. He, he didn't say to the crowd, here's the benefit if you choose me. He didn't list any. Now, I've got some. You have purpose. And you have meaning in life. And you have the feeling that I'm doing what I was placed here to do. And you have joy. And, and you have fulfillment. And your sins are forgiven. And you have a relationship with God. And it's the best life on earth to live. And you have heaven when you die. But he didn't mention any of those. In fact, he didn't mention any. So you don't follow for the benefits. 
So it's a costly decision. What do you say? A while back, we read a book together as a church called The Insanity of God. Here's a picture of it by Nick Ripkin. And you may remember one of the stories Nick told in one of the chapters, a chapter entitled, The Toughest Man I Ever Met. Let me tell you about the toughest man he said I ever met. Nick Ripkin, by the way, was a missionary, Southern Baptist missionary, to one of the most dangerous and hard places on the earth going up against its Muslim uh, ideology and, and Muslims and who were wanting to kill him. And he interviewed believers in several surrounding countries. Why, did the, why do you follow Christ? He told a story about a man who knew, heard that Nick was doing this and wanted to meet with Nick. And he said, I'll do all the arranging. Nick said, okay, because the man said, my life is in danger. You don't need to know who I am. Um, if, if I'm discovered, I'm dead. I'll arrange everything. I'll just tell you where to meet me. So Nick said, I went there, and, and there was a real small room. It was dimly lit. There was one little light bulb, very low wattage. And he said, there was a potted plant in the corner, and this man is standing behind the potted plant. I can't see him. I just see a figure. He said, he's a huge man. And I just, I see his figure, but that's all. And Nick said, well, sir, tell me your story. He said, for years, I, I followed Islam. I had 15 men who our job, anybody that came against us or against Allah in any way, it was our job to kill them. And I cannot tell you how good it felt to lift up somebody's head and slit their throat and feel their blood running down my hands and my arms and dripping off my elbows because I felt it was a sacrifice to Allah. He said, how many did you kill? He said, more than 150. I stopped counting at 150. He said, but something happened. I started having a dream at night that I had blood on my hands and blood on my arms and, and I couldn't get it off. I scrubbed and it wouldn't come off. And I used soap and he said, I used sand. I used, I wouldn't, I used everything, it wouldn't come off. And he said, I'd wake up in a cold sweat, panicking. I can't get this blood off. He said, then it began to happen during the day. He said, day and night, I would just sweat profusely. I, I couldn't get the blood off of my hands. Every time I looked down, I saw it. I couldn't get it off. And he said, then one night, as I went, went to bed, the dream changed. And it was a man standing there with white, a ro white robe on, and he had scars in his hands and scars on his feet and scars around his head. And, and I said, who are you? And he said, I am Esau, Messiah. If you can find me. I'll get the blood off. And so I started looking for him. I started asking people about him. And I would find a portion of scripture here and a portion of scripture there. And after six to 12 months, I finally put enough pieces together of the scripture of what I needed to do. And I submitted my life to Christ and things changed. I didn't see the blood anymore. But, but my friends turned on me and so they, they would beat me and arrest me and try to kill me and there was a hit out on me and I had bones broken and I was mutilated, I was starved, I was left for dead. And he said, I, I'm still serving. And Nick said, I just asked one question. I said, wow, how, how did that affect your wife and kids? 
And as soon as I said that, the man bolted out from behind the potted plant, ran up to where I was. He said, I saw his face. I saw everything. He's a big man. He grabbed me by the shoulders and he shook me. And he got right up in my face and he says, you leave him out of this. My greatest fear, I know what Jesus said, I have to hate my wife and hate my children. My greatest fear, they have to go through what I've been through. You leave them out of this. Nick said, I thought, I just gulped, I thought, okay, he's killed 150, I'm 151. And he said, then he asked me a question, how can he ask it? How can he ask this of me? I can't give my wife and kids. How can he do it? And Nick said, I was standing there and I gulped and I didn't know what to say. I said, God, please give me words. I don't know what to say. And he said, I gulped hard. And this is what came out. I said, sir, is Jesus worth it? If you have to give your wife and your kids and your life, is he worth it? He said, the man let go of my shoulders and hugged me, tears streaming down his face, and he just began to weep and sob, wiped the tears away angrily, mad that he was even crying. And he said, he just embraced me tightly and said, yes, yes, he's worth it. And then Nick Ripkin said, I left there and I came back to the United States and I preach in Baptist churches on Sunday mornings and I tell the story of the toughest man I ever met. And I asked the congregation the same thing I asked him. Is Jesus worth it? But in Baptist churches all across America, I met with awkward silence. They don't say yes. Some of them whisper, no, it's not worth my kids, my spouse, my job, my life. So First Baptist Church of Garland, let me ask you, is Jesus worth it? It's your choice. If you want to follow, here's how. If you don't, it's up to you. Let's bow our heads together very quietly, just for a moment. This morning I wonder if God has spoken to you from his word. It's a passage that's hard. Are you willing to give it up, everything? I'm not talking about a convert versus a disciple. I'm talking about either if you follow you don't and if you follow here's what it looks like I know some of you probably are online either one are probably saying well Lord, it's it's not worth it I can promise you that it is it's your choice maybe today as soon as the service is over Michael's gonna be standing right up here and I want to ask you to come if you've never received Christ it's your opportunity to say yes he is and I want to follow. There may be some of you who are believers today, but if you're honest, he doesn't, he doesn't have all of you. He's got some. He doesn't have all. 
And maybe today is your day to recommend, uh, re recommit your life to the Lord and follow and serve him with everything. If God's calling you to join our church, that decision is welcome as well. Come see Michael or any other prayer need you have, come to see him. But just for a moment, what's your decision? Father God, what you gave us today was a hard passage. And I just pray as we leave here, we will not leave casually as casual Christians will either be 100% following you or not. And Jesus, I want to thank you that you've been faithful in my life, and I thank you for that. And Jesus, my answer is you are worth it. You're worth every bit I can give to you and more. So God, help us today those listening to make decisions follow you in Jesus name amen God bless you have a good week